many, how many students have we got here? Let's see a handful. I think there's a sign-up sheet going around too. Where's the sign-up sheet? There it is back there. If you need that. My name is Seth Ashley. I'm a professor in the communication department. Uh, I'm really excited to be, uh, be one of the sponsors of the event tonight, along with the uh, Com Grad Student Association, who Morel represents here, the Idaho Media Initiative, uh, Carissa Wolf in the back, our co-founder, and uh, and of course Radio Boise, who has uh, put the whole thing together and, and brought Sally Kane to us. So. Um, I, I thought I'd really quickly just say a, a few words. I'm super excited that we have a community where people care about um, public media and that, and that so many people are here to talk about the values and ethics of community and public media. And I can't wait to hear what, what Sally has to say about this. Um, I'm such a nerd about this stuff. I wrote my whole dissertation on, um, on the origins of broadcasting in the US and Britain. And I compared, you know, why did we end up with a totally for-profit commercial broadcasting system in this country, while in Britain they got the complete opposite, basically. They got a total public monopoly, total non-profit, non-commercial uh, uh, situation. Since, you know, since the 20s when radio was first, first came about, uh, all these policies have kind of moved toward the middle, but, uh, but every other developed country in the world has, has much more robust media system uh, when it comes to public and community media uh, based, on, based on all the research that I've seen. So, so I'd like us to get caught up on, on that front and uh, have a more mixed media system where we really have more robust and vibrant uh, non-commercial public and community media. So, uh, so I look forward to hearing what Sally has to say about that. Um, this is our interpreter, Jeremy, who's nice enough to be here tonight. And uh, I, think, I think without further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to Jeff from Radio Boise. And uh, he's gonna get us going. Are you ready, Jeff? Yes, I am. You're on. <laughs> All yours. Thanks, Seth. Um, Wow, it's so great to see you all. Thank you so much for being here. Um, we haven't done a lot of this yet. One of my goals for the station, I'm station manager at Radio Boise, if, for those of you who don't know. Do you all listen to the station, or at least are aware of it? Yeah. Yeah? Great. Um, so I have a lot of roles at the station. One of them is to try to develop a higher level of awareness, consciousness, about the, not just our programming, Right? Not just about the great music, not just about the public affairs that we are continuing to have grow and evolve as our station has. We've been on the air three and a half years. But also to try to um, institute some level of knowledge about the history right, of community radio and the power and the, the, um, the transformational actions that have come as a consequence of community radio being founded in this country. Community radio has roots uh, all over the world. Um, ours are um, rooted in a lot of social uh, justice protest movements um, coming out of uh, the 40s and the 50s um, in the form of Pacifica radio. Um, but for us, we're on this island here, right? And we don't have this familiarity so much with public media. We know about Boise State and the great work that they do. Um, uh, but we don't know a lot about grassroots media, right? And today, in our culture, and in all the various alternatives that we all have to plug into our culture and our society, um, independent media can be such a powerful force in how we connect, how we solve problems, and how we come together as communities to have ourselves feel more authentic, right? Um, so, Part of that is in bringing folks like Sally to town, 
because um, what we want to do is really educate our community about yes, our programming, but also how we can use this resource that we all have now to really have it be a transformational resource for our community, right? So as far as Sally goes, I mean, I would be up here taking the rest of your time tonight if I had to go on about her. But um, uh, what I will choose to say um, in bits and pieces is um, that when I first met her in 03 at a community broadcasters conference, um, you know, you meet a lot of people at these things. And she was the one of the very first people that I gravitated towards. Um, and she, at that point, appeared like Wonder Woman to me. The way she was interacting with so many different types of people and offering such sage advice to people that were trying to learn about not just the benefits of their stations, but how to solve issues that were kind of um, uh, perpetuating at their stations, right? Um, and now I know even more that she's Wonder Woman, uh, 10 years later. Um, so um, her roots are um, in the uh, rural areas of um, Colorado, the West Slope of Colorado in Paonia. Her folks started the community station there. They helped found as original board members uh, KVNF uh, in Paonia, Colorado. And she grew up in a rural atmosphere um, on a small farm. Um, and but got bitten by the radio bug in high school. And um, so she has since led the station that folks founded uh, for over a decade, starting in around 2000. Um, but most recently, she's kind of stepped away from that. And the thing I love about Sally, she never forgets why she's in community radio, right? It's not to feed her ego, it's not to necessarily because she has a specific passion for music or this or that, but she knows it's a powerful vehicle to advance awareness, advance justice, and um, come together as a community. Right? <coughs> so um, really, um, what I guess I'll tie that up now, her new role is to bring those efforts into the 21st century by leading hundreds of community and public stations, NPR-based stations, into this new frontier, right? That is kind of a new order, but that new order kind of looks like a lot of disorder and a lot of adaptation. And so that's what Sally is just embarking on in the last year, National Federation of Community Broadcasters, and she will um, lead, as she always have, has, uh, this next group of stations and next group of leaders to make our medium as effective as it can possibly be. So, come on up, Sally. Sally Kane. Thank you for being here. And hats off to the smart professors who are giving you all extra credit for being here <laughs> because that fills up the room. Nice job. <laughs> Can I just get a quick show of hands of who are the students in the room tonight? Great. And who are folks associated with Radio Boise? Okay. And who are just interested people who found this an interesting topic? Excellent. Great. Wonderful. Um, happy to launch this uh, lecture series. I know that Jeff has grand visions of expanding and, and growing the significance of uh, the radio station in your community, Boise, no Boise. <laughs> um, 
And I think I would encourage, I, I encourage him to be part of lecture series because I think that it brings a whole different crowd to the table to talk about media than what we normally see in community media, which is uh, predominantly driven by volunteers who love music. And I'm one of those people, but um, I think a full spectrum is, is really great. So it's nice to see you here, and my, my hope for Radio Boise is that they continue um, to develop this in partnership with uh, Boise State. I think it would be a great thing. So this evening, there I just screwed up your recording, and an SEC violation right there. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, this evening, what I want to do is uh, I just spoke with uh, the board and Jeff, and just introduce you to what is community media within the public media universe and the larger commercial media universe, so everybody's clear about that. Um, a brief, brief little bit about how I got into it and um, what I'm doing now. And, and then talk some about the core values of community media, bring that discussion back to values. Um, it's not easy to talk about values, but I think they really are the cornerstone of culture and how culture develops. And you have to understand the culture of an organization if you want to understand it's about it, what, it, what it does in the community. Um, because beyond the land of strategy and strategic planning is culture, and it's a stronger, it's a stronger variable for what comes out the other end. In fact, um, I like to say that culture eats strategy for lunch, and I think that's pretty much true. So there's an interesting story there to talk about. So we'll talk a bit about core values. I want to touch on media models of the future and what I see. And hopefully that will be of interest to those of you in the uh, communications department as you are embarking on making really important decisions about where you want to put your time and energy in this field. I think um, it's not going to be anything groundbreaking, but I'll give you a perspective from someone who's had boots on the ground with this for quite some time. And, um, and, then, and then we'll go into deeper, you know, a little bit of a deeper discussion about what NFCP does. So you can get uh, a scope of sort of what the issues are in community media and how we're doing that. I'm lining up the mouse, the glasses case. Just leave that. <laughs> okay. Here we go. All right, a techie. I'm so glad I don't have the PowerPoint too because that. Um, so 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 a bit about that, and then and then. Nathaniel asked me to talk about ethics, emerging ethical quandaries and issues that are swirling about. And um, I'm, I'm happy to do that, talk about how I see that playing out within community media. And then I'll just close by giving you um, what I've become famous for in radio circles, which is nuggets of just things that I've learned, things that have made an impression on me. And then hopefully we can have a really robust back and forth question and answer session and have a conversation amongst ourselves. How's that sound? Everybody's with me? Great. Okay. So to get started, um, I think Jeff already alluded to um, how I got into radio, but it was in 1978. My parents uh, lived, were raising us on a farm, rural western Colorado, and I'm a Colorado native. My um, family's been there for four generations. And my parents had joined the Peace Corps and we traveled internationally when I was a child. So I started school 
uh, in kindergarten in a Sufi school in Calcutta. And I found myself then dropped back into rural Western Colorado uh, public schools. And um, our family was, was um, quite transformed by the experience of the Peace Corps. And I think my parents started to hear what was happening with National Public Radio at that time, and it was just very exciting. It was a whole different sound. There was a lot of rich audio. The whole charge of it was to bring the people to the people and not necessarily focus on the traditional model of the trained journalist, but to focus on the model of human beings, connecting with other human beings, and relating at the level of their stories in a, in a very authentic way with a lot of rich audio. So this was, this was groundbreaking. The, the boomers have sort of shaken up every single institution they've ever touched on. This is no exception. And people were very um, open to and excited by national public media, which is now, or national public radio, which is now NPR. So in our little town, we wanted a window to the world from our little backyard. My mother was convinced a TV would make you stupid. She was, she was freaked out that people were in front of screens two hours a day at that point. Um, now she's just given it, given up. She, she's an emoticon queen on Skype now. So, um, but at the time, that was just really core to them. They wanted us to keep listening. They wanted to keep reading to us. So they got motivated to start a community radio station in Western Colorado where I grew up. My high school principal, because I was involved with community theater and was a student leader, and um, I competed on the speech team, thought that radio would, might be a neat medium for me, a neat extracurricular activity, and he was right. Uh, so um, I fell in love with radio. Uh, in middle school, and it's been a, a, a great passion in my life ever since. I think it's a warm medium. I think it's a medium that allows your mind to imagine. I think that without all the visual stuff in front of you, you can actually hear more of what the tone of what people are saying, um, the emotion and the content of that, and I think that informs us on a more cellular level than either print media or the television. They're all important, but that was where that that was where I went. I, um, and if it were a 12-step program, I would tell you that I would just say hello. My name is Sally, and I'm an audiophile. And you all would say hi, Sally, because that's <laughs> that's just the way I take information in. So so um, it was a natural match. I've stayed involved with it my whole life, and um, and I want to tell you a little bit about what community radio is so that you can understand what that involvement has meant because it's not just about being in front of a microphone. These are nonprofit organizations that are grassroots in nature and predominantly run by volunteers. So it's a completely different animal than a professional newsroom. And within the universe of public media in the United States, which Seth, you're going to have to teach a whole class on the Communications Act 1937, 1967, and why we wanted to protect a spectrum of our airwaves to serve in the public interest. And interestingly, it was professors and teachers that led that effort because radio was a powerful, powerful thing when it came onto the scene. And it quickly got filled with advertising. And just like it is today, there were some money families who had all kinds of money to buy up all the advertising to direct you to their products. And these educators said, wait a minute, there's a tremendous potential here to do good. 
to do something larger than what any individual wants, something that benefits the whole. And so they fought for it. And that's why at the lower end of the spectrum, the 87s up to like the 93s or 2s or 3s is where you find public media. That's, that, was their, that was their work. And it would be a, a fascinating story for people to understand because we don't have the CBC, we don't have the BBC, but we do have a consistently strong, feisty bunch of people who have always fought for a certain amount of that spectrum to serve in the public interest and to be free of advertising. And more and more in our country, that in itself is a radical notion because, as you know, everything is marketed and sold. So that's sort of the genesis of how public media got started. And when you think of national public radio or larger um, public media operations, and I'm talking about community media, and you might be thinking, what is that? And I can tell you the primary distinction is that in community media, the majority of our programming, 65% or more, in the case of Radio Boise, even more, is, is done by volunteers. At NPR, it's all professional paid staff. That's not right or wrong, that's just the distinction between the two. <coughs> and I have a lot of regard for the incredible journalism that um, NPR provides to our country on a daily basis. Appreciate it very much. In the station that I ran, we aired it. Um, morning edition, all things considered, on a regular basis. But the difference is that, I mean, the similarity is that our business model in public media is, and this is where it differs from the BBC or the CBC, is that um, we rely on listener support for what we do. And that comes in a couple ways. It comes in a membership. So you call in when they're on the air twice a year saying be a member. We're empowering you to be part of this organization. If you want to be a DJ, we'll train you. If you want to be on our board, we'll work with you. Uh, that's the grassroots community part of it. And the other way that the, uh, public, that the individual's money and the public's money comes into it through listener support is through what we call underwriting in our business which is um, a means of businesses and individuals supporting the programming and also you know, having, them, having their support be named. But it's also highly regulated such that if you try and approach it as selling an ad, you'll go crazy because you can't make a call to action. You can't mention a price for anything. You can't read it in a certain, at a certain volume level. The volume can't be higher than the rest of the programming. So they really tried very hard to take the used car salesman feel out of the radio experience in public media. So has everybody listened to a public radio station in the room? Then you know what I'm talking about. It's a different sound, right? So, um, so all of public media has this listener support model. All of it has the same history of being on that end of the spectrum, of being nonprofit organizations, that have to have a mission, they have to have a, 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 a governing board, and they have to comply with all FCC and IRS-related 501c3 laws. Community radio within that is the one that is um, infused with the grassroots involvement of the citizens of the communities. So um, that kind of brings me to what my experience was running a rural uh, radio station, KVNF started with 10 watts of power in a fruit packing shed on a mesa outside of the town where I grew up. 
Um, that was 35 years ago, and today it covers 10,000 square miles in western Colorado. It's the size of Rhode Island, Connecticut combined. We have two transmitters, five translators. We serve about 200,000 people, and we have local news, national news, international news, and really amazing music programming from a whole slew of over 100 volunteers who really spend a lot of their time in what we call music discovery, which is sifting through a lot of the things that are out there and presenting them to people in a thoughtful way to try and expose them to new ideas, um, to compelling um, experiences of listening, and to something that you're not getting anywhere else. That's really a lot of what it's about. So KBNF, um, let's see, I, I unwittingly became the general manager of it. I actually had a career in healthcare uh, delivering babies. <laughs> Don't ask what that connection is, but that's what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and I was everything I could do not to grab that eight-week-old beautiful baby and just sit in the back and listen to Jeff talk. But, um, but basically, I think because it took root in my life when, when I was in middle school and high school, and because of my um, love for music and public speaking, um, it just kept drawing me back in. So I volunteered. I then became president of the board, the same radio station my mother helped to start. And, um, and then we decided that it was time for us to do a major capital campaign, a million dollars. This is in a community where the average income for a family of four is $23,000. But we wanted a building that reflected the value we placed on our experience of community media. And so that's how I became the general manager and then executive director. I'm now the CEO of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. And I want to talk more about NFCB, but first I want to continue on this thread <coughs> of core values. Because community media upholds the following values. Diversity, and that is not only of ethnicity or gender, but also of diversity of ideas. Localism, so content that is mixed with and resonant and enhances national content and community building. The idea that we all come into the world alone, we go out alone, but all of our time on this earth seems to be about connecting. And it's, it's about as strong of an impulse as breathing to try and communicate. And unfortunately, um, communication done badly is a, is a horrible <laughs> train wreck and everyone's experienced it, but done well, it's also an incredibly strong force for good in the world and for understanding and compassion. So um, th these are the core values that community radio embraces. And um, within the National Federation of Community Broadcasters and within community media, that is truly where the diversity in public media is concentrated. So for example, 65% of our membership at NFCB are rural stations. Many of those stations are Native American <coughs> stations and tribal licensees. Their mission is to preserve their language, their culture, their art. It's the same in the rural communities. 
Um, we have incubated within our organization and, and given wings to the Latino Public Radio Consortium and to the African American Radio Consortium. So basically our constituencies are rural, African American, Latino, and Native American. And then we have stations like Radio Boise in urban areas where um, people are motivated to have a greater degree of diversity of opinion, of um, local content that's relevant to people here, and, and to be part of and actively engaged in building the health of their communities. Everybody with me so far? Is Bill doing okay? All right. Any questions about that part of things? No? Okay. Do you have any comment about core values in community media? Are you with me? I, I got a question. Yeah. So how, how is the diversity reflected in Paonia on your station? The hippies and the rednecks, the newcomers, and the old timers. Anybody heard that before? In fact, I was in Washington while we were saying, these are the metrics. We have to ask everybody how many of this color, how many of this gender. And I raised my hand and said, what about white western Colorado? Um, that really is the diversity. It's a, it's a tremendous polarization, a diversity of opinion and view and lifestyle. And that's how it plays out. Yes. Do you actually reflect that on your board of directors? Because we, I'm not sure we do. You know that that is such a sticky thicket because um, there there really are. There, it, it seems to me that um, the more quote progressive elements of a community are more invested in these core values, right? So they tend to represent themselves more strongly in the organization. So they're, they're in some ways at KBNF, one of the ways that we would say we were actually reflecting diversity was to even present an opinion different from the dominant paradigm. That was diversity in itself. But yes, over many years and being 35 years old, we have um, much greater success serving a broader spectrum of our community. And one of the ways that we've done that was a really interesting investigative reporting project looking at climate and climate changes through the lens of seasonal change in Colorado. And what we found was that was a topic farmers and ranchers wanted to talk about. And that is a topic coal miners want to talk about. And so in branching into providing local news, we started to serve a larger spectrum of our community. We also have one of the best country shows in the state of Colorado, and that didn't, that didn't hurt us either. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, there's certain aspects of, the, of your population as there is in our population that are quite adequately represented in commercial media, and there are others that aren't, and mm -hmm. I think Radio Boise serves some of that other. Yeah, and I think you can make a perfectly legitimate case for that. I mean, people would say to me at KVNF, why don't you air Rush Limbaugh's? Because it's on 15 other channels if I'm driving down the road. I don't need to do that. I need to offer another point of view. So, um, and, and you know, 
That's what a democratic society requires of us, to make room for that. So um, my experience right now is very much focused on looking at uh, the future, the future of media in general, and community media in particular. And there's lots of work and research being done right now within our system and across systems about um, media in particular and what, what are its characteristics, what is its role in society. And in the case of public media, a lot of that research focuses on what's a healthy organization. It's just about nonprofits because they're really a unique way to run a service like this is to have a nonprofit to run it. Um, so, so my comments are really about, some of it is just about nonprofits and others are just about the field of media and what I see. The main charge that we feel in public media as a system is for us to reflect more the changing demographic of the country, the emerging majority of Latinos and women. And what we find is that our system is predominantly white, highly educated people over 40 years old. So, if you're in a field, and that's your primary demographic, and the emerging demographic is not that, and the young people are doing other things and have not grown up listening to radio, you've got a really exciting opportunity to reinvent yourself. I know you were thinking I was gonna say a challenge, but. I'm remapping my brain to say you have a really exciting opportunity to reinvent yourself. <laughs> Add to that a total and complete disruption of media, no matter whether it's commercial or public, via the digital revolution that we, that we now live in, the digital space we live in. People get their information in completely different ways. It changes how they think about things. It changes how they talk about things. It changes how we distribute programming, how we even think of formatting programming, and how the <coughs> listener experiences the programming. And I'm sure if you're in a communications class or a media class, you're talking about digital. Because it's not even the disruptor on the horizon. It already happened. And I think a lot of us in media have this strange pressure there's this huge elephant in the room, and we think if we can just like streak out around them and get in front of the curve, that we will get there in the in the digital space. And I've just decided that that's ludicrous. That nobody's ever going to just get there out in front of that. I mean, we are all changing every day with the influence of the digital space in our lives, for better and for worse, in my opinion. So media is no different. Just if you're a small business owner, you're doing you have so much more dependence on a computer now than you did before. And with, in the media space, just add an exponent of about 10 to that in terms of how your life changes in media now. So those of you who are young and heading into this have a great advantage because this digital space is actually native to you in ways that it isn't to um, uh, boomers like me. Not to say I can't. I'm not proficient, I can't get around in it, but uh, yes, I hand my cell phone off to my 25-year-old daughter when I buy a new one because she can set it up for me. She can put the nice little wallpaper on there and all the bells and whistles that I need and I don't have to go into a sweat over it. And I see how quickly she does it and, um, and 
that that's definitely playing itself out in public media as well. Um, so, so we're looking at this through the lens of, all right, we have a digital revolution happening. And in addition to that, our listener support model is strained. It's kind of broken. And part of that is because nonprofits have, have just, you know, um, multiplied by the thousands in the last 20, 25 years. So there's much more competition for a finite set of resources that people have, right? So our fundraising model of relying so much on listener support in times of economic downturn, times where people have many, many choices of where to put their money, and where people also have many choices of where to get their content is tricky. So we are having to turn our attention to become much more sophisticated in the realm of major gifts and larger donations from philanthropists and this kind of social contract giving that the arts community has been very good at for a very long time. So those are some of the, sort of the lay of the land of, of how um, the future is emerging for us as we look at it. And in general, the system thinkers have uh, pretty much lined it out as what are our goals moving forward? We want wider use, we want deeper value, and we want greater impact. And by impact we mean what is all this information actually doing in the lives of real human beings? Is it moving them to have a greater sense of agency in the communities they live? Is it impacting uh, local leaders and municipal and state leaders to actually create change at a policy level? Um, it, does it truly serve the public interest? Does it meet the test of being a true public service in, in the same vein as public libraries and public schools? Does that make sense? So we're looking at all of those things. And there are a few elements that I see emerging in major models that are being uh, tried, and I can go into a lot more detail about some of those models if you're interested. Maybe we'll get to that in the Q&A. But um, in general, people are pooling resources, whether that's administrative, operational, content. They're tending to sit down at the table and say, I can offer this, I have this reporter working on this, what do you have, we can do this. Together we make a magazine, we package that, we aggregate it, and we've got something valuable to offer to people. And uh, that's, that's one of the things I'm seeing. Another thing that I see is that people are sharing their assets. Um, and that can involve technical equipment, it can involve uh, experts in your station. There's a lot of that cross-pollinating that's going on. Um, people are diversifying their revenue streams. They're trying to build in the major gifts department. They're trying to um, form stronger ties with community foundations, with public libraries, with universities, and with public schools. So there are a lot of those kinds of um, efforts happening in the arenas of partnership and collaboration. Um, and they're trying to streamline their operations. They're trying to be as efficient as they possibly can, just like most people are with their household income in times of constrained resources. You really value those, those resources in a different way. So these are some of the key variables that I see with um, media models in the future. And I'll give you one example, and that is Coast Alaska. And um, there were seven stations in Alaska 
They were all, there's a lot of community radio in Alaska, as you can imagine. There's a lot in Colorado, there's a lot in California. There tend to be a lot in places where you have uh, remote, kind of rugged geographies that people um, need these services, want this information, and they will come together as a community to support it. So in, coastal, in the Coast Alaska story, what happened was the state government uh, saw a drop off in its revenues and started to pull its support for community and public media out of Alaska. So these stations were struggling to uh, raise enough funds in the local communities to continue the service, but people were relying on the service. And remember, for many of these stations, if there is a public safety emergency, they're the only game in town. They're the only boots on the ground. And I can tell you many stories of how community radio has championed the community by being those, those feet on the ground. Because as consolidated as media has become, so often if something happens locally, there is no one to call in any of those places to help you. In, in, in a public media institution, there are boots on the ground in the communities. So in Alaska, this is critical. So they decided that, um, and this was many, many beers later, uh, many meetings later, when they decided they could all get along because, you know, rugged individuals, mavericks, um, they decided that they would hire an executive director, form an organization called Coast Alaska, and that that executive director would be in charge of, of offering executive leadership, administrative leadership, bringing on board a senior news editor, uh, development person, and, um, an, and a traveling engineer. So now, a little station in Alaska that had to fly an engineer in to do something and pay for it all themselves, that, that paid for a reporter to be a, have a news department of one, which is never a good idea. I can tell you why later if you want to know. But um, they, and, and, and writing all their own fundraising letters, sending them out, following up on it, mailing off the premiums, etc., started eating up more and more of their time and their money. So under economic duress, they came together and sat at the table. And what did they find? Well, down the road, now, um, they actually have higher revenue in every department. All of those seven, seven towns have autonomous boards that make their own decisions. They write their own fundraising letters, but they're all processed through a central organization in, in um, Juneau, I believe, Juneau. And they make more money. They have to spend less money on some basic operations. And their little news department of one person here, one person here, one person here, through one senior coordinating editor, just got turned into a news department of about 13. So they're able to do regional stories, local stories, provide a better service to, the, to their constituents. So that's one example of a working model that a lot of people are looking at, uh, just to give you a little flavor of how things are kind of moving. And I think it's creative and it's been successful and uh, the roadblocks along the way have been that when people talk about collaboration and especially when they are doing it under economic duress the attitude is to come to the table with I need to save money what am I going to get out of this and that's completely the wrong attitude <laughs> because first of all it costs you a little bit more money to engage in those kinds of activities and to figure out the systems and to put everything in place to make that happen 
And secondly, it's not about what you're going to get out of it. It's really about what are you bringing to the table to offer. And what are you willing to give up? How much of yourself are you willing to get over to be part of something larger than just you? So those were a lot of the kind of interpersonal dynamics and organizational culture dynamics that had to be overcome in order for these models to thrive. So I think I went over the, the basic elements of that. And I just want to say that as an observation, beyond media, it's kind of just a truth in life in general. But um, you need a positive ecosystem, psychological ecosystem, in order to succeed. And, and for me, you know, that has to involve something that's inspiring. And there have to be adequate resources. And there has to be a lot of respect for talent and in, in media. And that's the, the, the talent and the content is king. If, if whatever you're putting out there isn't worth listening to, what's the point? So um, that's really what we're striving for in public media in general, and community radio in particular. And it's a tall order, because as you can imagine, I've told you who my constituents are, each of them unique. All of them have their own kind of sets of, of situations. And then priding yourself on being diverse and local also means that it's hard to find the common threads to come together and have a, a movement happen within public media, right? It's also really interesting um, because there, people are just endlessly creative about what they're doing. So let's talk a minute about NFCB, this federation. It's 40 years old. We have really three main areas that, that we tend to, um, two, two main areas actually. The third is kind of an overlay. But the first is advocacy. So my job is to be at the table with the FCC, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is a nonprofit organization that Congress funds to then distribute funds equitably throughout the public media system. And it's a small amount of money in the federal budget, like a blip. Um, and it's actually a small amount of money to a lot of the larger public media institutions. But when you get down to the rural areas, it's a very large amount of money. And, and it keeps that, it's, think of it as the interstate structure, highway structure in our country. It's an infrastructure. And we have made a commitment to it as people in a democratic society that there should be a free flow of information. And we've funded it for decades, and it's worth a whole lot of money, and it requires money to maintain it. And that's a big piece of um, how it's governed through the FCC and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Congress. The main distributors of content, of content are National Public Radio, American Public Media, and Public Radio International. So it's kind of the, the advocacy work that I do is with those legal entities and with the distributors. So right now I serve on the Digital and Interconnect Committee for the National Public Radio Board. Um, the media division chief of the FCC is somebody I talk to. Uh, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting is a major player in all of this. So if there are meetings that are convened, if there's thought leadership that's going on, this is a table that, that, that I sit at and try and advocate for the needs of the smaller stations and the constituencies that I mentioned. 
um, in, a, in a policy arena, you know, what are the big hot issues? Net neutrality is one of them. Um, music licensing, copyright, royalties. The whole role of federal funding in a public media system in a democratic society. Those are three main policy issues that we're constantly looking at. The second area that NFCB is very active in is um, providing services to our members. We're basically a trade organization. And we do that um, through the list, a listserv, through a monthly newsletter, a very robust webinar series. And it ranges in topics from social media, uh, audience measurement, financial management, governance, music discovery, journalism and ethics. These are all the kinds of topics that we provide training and professional development to communities so that they are able to grow and um, grow their stations and reach the aspirations that they have for their, for their um, to reach their core values, supporting localism and community building. So we do that. And we also do station-based consulting. We have a national conference professional development, and we have a website that has a membership area where we have developed public radio legal handbook, underwriting handbook, volunteer management handbook, lots of templates and tools and materials. So that's what um, we do at National Federation of Community Broadcasters, and that's why Jeff's a member, right? Great organization. <laughs> Any questions so far about What's public media? What's community media? What's this landscape like? How are people being challenged by the digital? Yes. <coughs> I'm curious. I wonder if there's have there been studies about how many people listen to radio on the radio over the airways versus how many people stream. Um, I, it seems like the people I talk to who listen to Radio Boise, they're all going out to RadioBoise.org and streaming, even if they're here local. Do, do we know what those what those trends are, what it's looking like? Are radio people still listening to radio, or what's going on there? They're listening to radio in the car. Mm -hmm. They're listening to radio if they are working on, oh, construction workers listen to radio like crazy. Uh, restaurant workers. So people who are doing jobs where their hands are busy, and they're listening to radio as a background thing. The car thing is all about drive time in the morning, drive time in the evening, getting your infusion of news and music. The online audience is going through the roof. And don't kid yourself, Pandora's wonderful. I, I love Pandora. So, and, and, and there's so many things you can find. But small little, little um, streaming radio stations and your stream at Radio Boise, KVNF stream, are wildly popular with people. They like the variety. They like sort of the quirky commentary that comes in and out of it. It's interesting. Um, oftentimes, it'll turn them on to new music that they hadn't thought about, and then they'll go to Pandora and say, "Oh man, I listened to that, you know, that new album that Natalie Merchant just did, and I really want to hear something else about that, or some artist I've never heard of." Oftentimes, um, radio stations will. Um, the conveners of live music events and lecture type series for, for, for the um, news and information side of things. And that really draws people in. They've, they've heard it online. So in terms of measurement, it's very difficult. Nielsen is the main collector of data. 
and they have developed, first there were diaries, and they would mail it to you, and you would say where you listen to, well people always say they listen more than they actually do. They replaced that with the uh, people meter. I always think per flying purple people meter, but it's not And, and what happened was the audience rates started dropped when people used the meter because people were, it was at, they were actually getting the real information of how often people listened. Because people have a real sense of loyalty. If they've tuned in at one point to a radio station and they really liked it, they say, yeah, that's what I listen to. But with the little meter, you know exactly how long they're staying tuned into you. So we have seen a drop off to the actual radio, although it's still strong in the car and among certain kinds of um, groups. And then um, what, what we've seen is more and more people tuning in online while they're working. And oftentimes work uh, environments that involve computers, your bosses kind of frown on you listening to the radio, so, so there's that to consider as well. Um, but in general, radio audience is growing, which is kind of crazy with everything else that's going on, but there's something people love about it. They keep listening. And the, yes, the way we view it is that we are, um, it's, 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 it's still, the programming is still what we're doing. It's just coming through it. It's just now it's in your pocket, you know? So it's just, that's the change. Yes? I was going to ask, um, you know, some stations get, some community stations get uh, CPB, Corporation for Public Broadcasting money, and some don't, right? And does the mere fact that a station gets CPB money tend to impact their programming in any way? It's an excellent question. I know that Radio Boise does not because the, the program is set up such that there's a threshold for the amount of what we call NFFS, which is non-federally funded financial support. And if you don't meet a certain threshold, you're not eligible for that program. You, you know, and there, there's other set, set of criteria, but that, that's one of the main make or break it. So the, the um, and having, been involved with stations who don't receive the CPB money and running a station that does, I can tell you, yes, there's an impact. And, um, and really, the positive side of it is that CPB also loads their uh, requirements with some really good practices for nonprofits around accountability, posting your finances, making sure that you are being transparent with the people you are serving, upholding all FCC regulations, I mean, they really hammer you on that stuff. So you have to run a pretty clean shop. That's the good side of it. The bad side of it is CPB is there to distribute an American taxpayer's investment in a public media system. It's supposed to be blind to anything having to do with programming and content. But they care about it, obviously. <laughs> They're trying to send signals. They're trying to, you know, they, the, the community service grants are strictly based on your size, the audience that you're serving, the amount of community support you get, period. It's a metric, bam. If you're rural, there's fewer than 40 people per square mile, there's a little bit more money there for you because they know that the infrastructure is expensive. If you are owned by um, minority and communities, communities of color, there's some money there because they also know that it's harder to raise the money, right? So, um, there's this tiny little sliver of the money, they call it the 6% money, that they fund initiatives in the system, they try and be thought leaders, that's where they come in and meddle around a little bit and say, 
we really think this is valuable, and everybody runs over there to try <laughs> to apply for the money. But it's not really, it doesn't make or break the organization. It just depends on what your leadership is within it. So there can be an influence. And I think you had a question. Well, it was, you kind of answered some of it. I was wondering what those thresholds were. Uh, they are, they have just been revised. For, since the 70s, there was $100,000 of non-federally funded financial support. Now, um, calculating for inflation and what the value of what that would have been at the time that it was established is $300,000. So by 2017, it's going to be $300,000. The metrics are very onerous. Yeah. They don't even get how they do the metrics, so I don't know how many of us could understand how they do it, but um, yes. I'm just wondering how, as things become more and more converged and digital, how committed you are to audio as a format, and how committed you think uh, people should be, uh, considering that people are getting so much more online and, and you can use so many different formats to reach people. I mean, obviously, audio has is, is useful for certain things, but so is video, and so is text, and so are images and slideshows, and you know, all these other kinds of things that we can do online. Is that beyond the scope of what you and your group try to do, or is there? Is there no, I think we, we, we basically become platform agnostic. I mean, you know, you'll see a lot of radio stations who are putting video on their sites to complement the stories. And you will see um, people writing, you know, you, you, for radio, you write for the ear. It's very different than print media. So now you're starting to see print media, uh, because they all lost their jobs coming into radio, and really leading content on websites. And almost every radio station has a, has a website now. So um, a lot of the kind of innovative investigative journalism and stuff really incorporates audio, visual, podcasts. Podcasts are very popular. The local newscast at the station I ran is a podcast now, so if you missed it in the morning, you load it on your phone, you read, you listen to it when you want to. So I think people are rolling with it. And, um, and do you blame Steve Jobs for taking away radio? Or, or, of course. Or is it better we all blame Steve Jobs. I blame him for ruining my eyes, goddamn it. <laughs> <laughs> Rest in peace. <laughs> well, I guess I'm uh, still don't understand how you navigate. Radio Boise is kind of in transition. It's from entertainment and information to yeah. a voice and, and part of the community. But in this time, to say something, to have diversity and to have an opinion is liberal in. in, in Itself, but in this town, the line is pretty much in the sand. How do you, how do you attract some other than, like you say, the common denominator? How do you attract someone without alienating someone and still maintain integrity, diversity? Well, I think it's a good question, and I think one of the great strengths of a mixed format station is that you also have art and mu music which is a great unifier among people. There's something transcendent about music. People fight about a lot of things, a lot of ideas and opinions, but often music unites people. And in our town, for example, we went into partnership with the three local municipalities for a free summer concert series in the park. 
we broadcast it live on the radio. But I mean, it was a very broad spectrum of people who would come out to the park because they were bringing a picnic, they were coming with their families, and we were just sharing music. Simple. So I think you start with the small things. And I think that when you do have discussions, it's very important, and this is where um, best practices in journalism make all the difference in the world. Because you need to have skillful conveners of conversations. And people who aren't driving interviews with like a Mack truck. And, um, and allowing for people to speak their mind without insulting them and without fighting with them, but just allowing people to be heard. These are things that we don't always do well, but I think they are um, increasingly important. And I want to I want to talk a little bit more <coughs> towards the end about that polarization because I think it's a great threat to our democracy. And and there's part of me that just says you can lead a horse to water and you can't make him drink. Damn it, you know. <laughs> If someone doesn't want to have a civil conversation and they grew up yelling at each other or whatever their story is, what are you going to do about it? You know, you're going to stop doing what you're doing because that's their reality? No. So some of it is just keeping the faith and, and uh, trying to be a good human being. I think there was a question here, yeah. yeah do you think the, I guess, the ability to offer on-demand digital content is necessary to stay, to keep a seat at the future of the future of uh, media consumption? I does, absolutely do. Does NFCB have like a toolkit or a guide for how its member stations can best implement that? Like at, at Radio Voice, especially there's so much variety in the, the music content, and it, it seems like it's something we might need to do to, to harness a variety of tastes around the clock. So um, this, is, this is a kind of an ongoing concern at many community radio stations because we started out being I mean, in many ways, community radio was kind of the first Facebook, right? And, and it, it had this, what they call a patchwork quilt kind of format. And you could have, you know, um, I don't know, Hmong refugees talking about their experiences followed by bluegrass. And followed by, I mean, you're laughing because you know the story, right? <laughs> a little something for everybody. But, but that was before time and space completely changed. So now people are just picking what they want. And there, you know, there, there was a, one of my colleagues said they were having a conversation with uh, their nephew. And um, he mentioned that he appreciated a certain type of music. Oh, well, listen to the radio station, listen to the show, liked it. And, um, and my colleague said, well, you can hear that every Thursday night from 7 to 9.30. And he just laughed. He was like, that is ridiculous. What are you talking about? You know? It's a, television was hit by the same thing. Right? Nobody does that anymore. So, so yeah. To me, that's like if you're just starting to think about that, you miss the bus. Uh, and and the way that you do that and the way you make decisions is hard because there is a finite number of airtime that you're filling, and you're relying on a pool of volunteers who come to it with their passions and their interests. So you can't dictate all of that. But I do think, and in terms of tools in NFCB. Really, the best um, resource there is the Association of Independence in Radio. And that's the national organization that represents all the producers. And they're the ones really cranking out a lot of um, information about how you do that. But the one thing that stays the same is storytelling. Storytelling is radio space, big time. Yes? 
It's kind of connected to that yeah. question. Is there, have you thought about investing in sort of a mobile app platform that community radio stations could use sort of as the like starter kit to make a mobile app? Because that is part of the investment that is sort of big too. Yeah, and NPR know. just invented it, the Did public they? media platform. And community radio has to find you know, its way into that because actually, to their credit, NPR is really the, the powerhouse engine behind any research and development that happens in, in public media. So it's out there. And a lot of stations have their own apps, and there's a public media player um, that, that you can download on your phone or in your car, and it'll yeah. locate whichever community radio station you're around. Um, but a lot of stations have elected to have their own so that their listeners can go right to it and they're not looking around for anything. But, you know, it's there. It's, I would say that it's been a little daunting. To, this is what I mean about try and get ahead of that <laughs> big wave. Like, hey, there's a reason we call it surfing. You're not going to get ahead of that wave. It's changing everything and you, you surf. So you try things. And there are stations that have these people who come forward as volunteers who are just absolutely brilliant, and they're trying new things that put, put them way ahead of curves. And there are other stations that are, are completely freaked out by any of it. And in my, in my case in rural Colorado, you, you'll pry that terrestrial um, signal out of my cold, dead hands because I'll tell you what, we don't have solid internet everywhere. So in an emergency or anything else, that's our backup. And we need it. So we will stay with terrestrial broadcasting. And I am not at all convinced that we're not going to have some major problems with internet and broadband. I mean, every technology has problems, right? We're going to hit some walls. I mean, how many of you, when the internet goes down for whatever reason, sit there and think, well, I may as well just go home because I can't do anything. I mean, that's how dependent we all are. I think there were some more questions in the back. Anything? Yeah? No? You're good? Okay. Yeah? I was wondering if you could speak more about how producing uh, local news, particularly local shows, fits in with the community radio station model. Uh -huh. um, radio Voice has a number of amazing shows that are produced locally, but it's they're, and they're ran by a lot of really dedicated people. Um, and Voice is an interesting market in that um, our public radio station have a local live show like Seattle does with KDOW, the record. Um, and I'm just wondering if you're seeing any kind of new models emerging for um, how these shows come about, or maybe, maybe how they're funded, or how um, how they operate within it. Are you from design. Seattle? Um, no. So, <laughs> I went to school. Yeah, OK, because the Northwest News Network is the model. Mm -hmm. And um, not the, the model, but it's, it's an incredible model for providing news to a, a multi-state area, local news. And the way they do that is kind of like Coast Alaska. They pooled resources, but they didn't do the administrative. All the other side was just content, just editors and producers. And they make a magazine, and they have stringers in various communities. And I think that um, to, your, to your question about local news and how it fits into the big picture, in my view, people want to connect the dots between the personal, um, their community, the larger state, country, globe, right? So local news well done helps make that circle complete. And the thing I would say about it is that it's a really tricky thing to do with volunteers. And part of that is because 
Once you start hard news, your responsibility to fairness and accuracy is a whole different ballgame. Public affairs programming is easy for community radio to do. It's easy to invite people in and convene great conversations and have them share their knowledge and information. It's very different to come into a major issue in a community and take the time to research. And I really think it's disturbing that we're all starting to believe that every citizen can be a journalist now because there's an internet. Because I don't know about you, but when I went through school, there were people who were good at that kind of stuff. <laughs> and they went on to be journalists, and it wasn't all of us. So I'm very concerned about that. I think that we need to make a safe haven in the public media system for true journalism and for the ethical foundations that it's based on. Because journalism is one of the most powerful checks and balances we have against tyranny. Absolutely. That is why there are more journalists being killed in the world today than any other profession. And so it's very, very important. And I would say, in, in my case at KVNF, I had to suck it up and take on $60,000 of extra costs to hire a news director and commit to it. And that news director still uses pieces from volunteers in the community, but they're usually people who are writers, or they have a background in training in, in literature, English, history, those kinds of things. And we that the news director really coordinates the kinds of stories. So we do rip and read headlines in the morning, and then we have um, a group of 16 stations in Colorado that pool their resources to hire a state capital reporter who lives in Denver. And every day during the legislative season, she produces a five-minute piece updating people in the rest of the state about what's going on in the legislature. People love it. They love capital coverage. They don't get that news anywhere else. And then we draw that home. Okay, so this is happening in the legislature. This is the decision that was just made. Here in Delta County, this is what happened. That's what we can do with local news. And it's powerful. And it costs more money and you have to build your fundraising capacity to sustain it. But I think there, there are lots of hybrid models out there. There are radio stations that do it all volunteer. There are radio stations that have a coordinating person and there are radio stations that are predominantly run by volunteers, as I've said, but their news department is paid journalists and interns. Yes? So for a radio station like Radio Boise, in, or Boise how, what's your definition of a true journalism? So the difference really between public affairs and news is that um, you have a reporter presenting the story to you versus the source of the topic talking from their own personal experience. I mean that's really the main distinction. And within that um, there are a number of standards that have been developed mostly by NPR and other major powerhouses in the news, public media news, around um, the ethical considerations of where you get, you know, what stories you follow. This cannot be connected to people who are supporting your organization. So if you have underwriting from a certain corporation, you know, these are hard things. I'm not saying anybody's getting there. But I mean, that, that there has to be a demonstrated effort to develop a set of ethical 
protocols around how you approach information. And it was really driven home to us because when we started out, um, for example, with when you have DJs on the air dissing the coal miners, and the coal miners all get laid off, and now you have a news department that wants to cover what happened at the mines, and the coal miners say, we're not talking to you. So it's been a, quite a transition to earn the trust of people to say, we have, we have a journalist and they're working on a story. And it's, it's, it's required a big effort on our part, you know. So I'm not sure there's a simple answer to that. I think there's, there's, there's always work to be done, but it really depends on. So that kind of, it's a perfect segue, which we love in radio, to, um, what I think the primary ethical dilemmas are, and probably I'm going to have to come back to talk about this some other time because we're definitely running out of time, but um, for me, the primary ethical dilemmas are, in general, accountability within the nonprofit sector. Um, it exploded. There was tremendous trust in nonprofits. They've grown. There's a lot of money in nonprofits now. They're a huge, huge economic driver. And there's corruption, and there's lack of transparency. And so there are ethical dilemmas around being accountable as a nonprofit organization that happens to be in media. There are ethical accountability considerations around <coughs> being a media organization and having accurate information to people for people. And all you have to do is start a news department and give one piece of bad information out there and be the general manager and field all those calls and you realize you are in a different ballgame. And it is not comfortable. So you want to make it right. So, um, so neutrality would be probably the best. Yeah, but, but neutrality is a holy grail, right? I mean, do any of us ever get there? But at the same time, you have to do your due diligence. You have to make an effort, and and especially as the interviewer, you know, to be constantly emotive and constantly affirming what someone's saying. That's bad journalism on the air. Um, the other area of of ethical consideration is really what is the impact of this service we're providing? And it's the same conundrum that the public schools find themselves in. How well are our students doing? Well, it's the same for us, only the litmus is, do we have an empowered citizenry that feels like they have agency, that they navigate the lives in their communities, that they have an impact on policy and in the quality of their lives? That's how we're measuring service. And there are ethical conundrums galore in that conversation. And then the ethical dilemmas around the highest use of your resources. So is your organization as efficient as, could, as it can be? Is it sustainable? Can it stand the test of time and context? These are the kinds of dilemmas that we're really grappling with. And I would say overlaying all of that is the fate of civil dialogue, and it's important in a democracy. There is a growing polarization epidemic and it is undermining the very foundation of our country and our First Amendment. And the pra look at the look at these elections. <laughs> Two thirds of the registered voters don't vote. You know, we, we are electing people to office by default. So and, and and people can't talk to each other. I've noticed this, and I'm sure you've all noticed that they're having a hard time doing it. And I think all of the you know texting and the Facebook posting and has only emboldened some of the antisocial tendencies of a lot of people, as much as it's helped in other arenas. I mean, there are things that people say in email 
that you would never say to someone's face. And so we're, you know, that, that, that's kind of an issue. And, I, and in general, if we in a democratic society don't know how it is to have an experience of a civil dialogue, we have lost our democracy because it relies on that. Um, I, I, I think we need to wrap up, so I'm just, I just want to leave you with a few closing nuggets and then I'm happy to stay and talk and, and answer questions, um, whatever you'd like. And um, first of all, I just, I just wanted to say that the, um, the economic reality of downturn, in my view, is not a storm we're weathering, it's the new normal. So if you, have a, if you have an approach that says we just want to get through this and then it's all going to be good again, I think you're nuts. I don't think that's going to happen. I think this is the new reality and we need to live in it and learn how to live within our means and learn how to be creative and inspiring and decent human beings in whatever context we're given. And the context we're given is one of, of uh, constraint. That's what's happening. We have built our economy on finite resources. <laughs> it does not take a rocket scientist to figure out that that is uh, something we have to learn to live with. That's not something that's going to pass. That's my opinion. Um, I also think that community-based media matters. Beyond information, beyond the news, beyond entertainment, I firmly believe that we want a place to belong. We want a sense of connection. And I think it will always matter no matter what the platform, no matter how it's delivered, I think human beings will migrate to that experience because it's in our nature to yearn for it. And it's in our nature to thrive within it. And nothing's ever gonna take that away. So that's why I, I really do encourage people not to live in too much fear about that because our basic nature, seeking that experience is not gonna change, in my opinion. Um, also, I think that um, there's an analogy that's helped me a lot with this, which is really I think of radio as performance art. And being someone from the interior west in Colorado, married to an outbound instructor for 20 years, we ran courses in the woods, the wilderness, and the rural areas are my, um, my home and my place and where I belong. And I believe that um, art, is a form of op open space. And Terry Tempest Williams talks about this a lot. She says that, um, she's a writer from Utah, conservationist, and she said, art is a form of open space whose very purpose is to disturb, <coughs> disrupt, and bring us to tenderness. And I think the public media system is our national park in that analogy. And I think we should fight for it because not everybody can own a big old ranch but everybody needs a piece of that experience. And that's what I believe community media really, really matters and why I've committed uh, so much of my adult life to not just making sure that it's sustainable, but to celebrating it. It's made me a better person and um, I think that it's a transformational uh, experience for many, many people. Um, so I guess I'll just leave you with that quote from Rumi, and I don't have it exactly there, but um, it kind of speaks to what I'm saying, which is when he talks about um, beyond the place of right and wrong is a field, and I will meet you there. 
to me, that is the heart space of community media. It's beyond the right and wrong. It's the field where we meet and where we share our humanity. And I think of that signal as the primal human campfire, one of the first activities humans ever engaged in, to sit around the campfire and tell your stories. And I just think that's powerful, and it'll never, it'll never not be powerful. So whatever you choose to do as students in communication, I just encourage you to tap uh, what you know to be true in your own experience as a human being and let that guide you. Because as much as the world changes around you, there are certain things in our essence that remain the same. So thanks for your time, everybody.
I mean, for one thing, I would say that Fox and MSNBC are just really good marketers, and they're yanking everybody's chain. <laughs> you know, that's very sensational stuff. And it's trying to get a rise out of people. And it actually removes the experience of ordinary people. <coughs> um, so, so I think that it's actually more of a manipulation than it is a true expression of diversity. Does that make sense? I think it's, I think it's mind control. Brainwashing. Yeah, I mean, you know, you hit that reptilian brain enough with sensational kinds of stuff. I can't watch either of them very very long because I start just getting so reactive. Oh, whether it's like makes me happy or not. But there's this really great thinker named Clay Johnson, and I really recommend this book. It's called The Information Diet. Have you read it? Don't you think that's great what he says? You know, he talks about how. He kind of looks at the obesity epidemic and then he looks at information and he draws parallels between the two and he says, we are feeding on junk food. And we're calling that diversity. And I think for, for, for youth, and I'm the mother of a 25 year old, a 27 year old, and I know that their whole concept of what diversity is is just about choices. So there's millions of choices out there. But actually, you know, I think there's an argument to be made for what, what Jane Johnson says is we need to be just like uh, food being closer to the source. So whole grains, vegetables, you know, that kind of thing. You need to eat your vegetables and your whole grains in the information world too. And it's not just a cut and paste reality. And, and people just think that they can Google this and there's the instant information for you, but it's very surface. And I don't see very much deep diving going on to really understand in depth what information is. To read something, sit with it for a while. I mean, how many people have a conversation and then return back to that conversation and finish it up the next day anymore? But you know what, your brain needs to do that. If you're constantly just stimulating your brain with all of this stuff, it makes it really, really hard to get to the core of where are you in all of this? That's my opinion. Yeah, no, I mean, I just, I don't think that neutrality is necessarily the opposite of Fox News and MSNBC. I mean, I think grounding it in the values we talked about earlier, like community and localism and, and you and diversity as a value, like that's not neutral, that's, I mean, that's a, uh, the fundamental of the storytelling. I agree with you. And I also think there's a pitfall in journalism today that says, as long as we have this side and now we get the other side, it actually feeds polarization. And you see that with the climate debate. You see the vast majority of the world scientists saying, this is the evidence. And you see corporate connection to a small number of scientists saying, this is all a hoax. And because journalists are saying we have to give 50-50, then they're giving way too much attention to a really crazy fringe, actually, in that conversation. The only thing that ensures is that you have a bigger audience, right? Because you're appealing mm -hmm. to both sides so much. It doesn't necessarily expose truth. Yes. And I guess, would you speak about how corporate advertising specifically plays into that? And is there a way forward, do you think, for public media to exist without corporate sponsorship? I would love for that day to come. <laughs> I think it's getting to be a more slippery slope every day. And I was just yesterday at NPR at, a meet, at meetings for the Digital Interconnect Committee, 
and there were people protesting that there were underwriters representing an industry that these people were really offended by. So I mean, the, it's coming it's coming up, you know? And I think the only way to do that is to commit to um, e either philanthropy needs to get in line and um, through community foundations just support the nonprofits of their communities in an equal way, or we need to have adequate funding for a public media system like <coughs> the BBC or the CBC. Those are the only way to get around that. There are a few stations in, mostly like in Colorado, in rich ski towns that don't do underwriting at all because they can show up at the Bluegrass Festival and sell $200,000 worth of beer over four days. <laughs> That's great, you know, but and maybe, you know, maybe that, but, but I think that it, it, it does influence organizations. It absolutely does. And it's a problem. I think much less so in public media than commercial media. <laughs> I mean, commercial media, the whole damn shop's for sale, you know. Yes? What's the, uh, the model, I guess, for a conversational format, whether it's a panel or a call-in, or to have a, a diverse conversation? So there's not a single model, but I think if you look at basic active listening skills, that's really where the core model comes from for interviewing. In other words, um, where somebody has something to say and you as the interviewer allow them to speak without interrupting, give them an mirror back what you hear, give them an opportunity to clarify or expound on something, and then you allow other people to enter that. So you're holding the space for that kind of validation to go back and forth is the primary model of how that's done. And you don't see it very much. You don't hear it very much. But when it's done really well, um, I think that that has a whole different effect. Yeah. How would you balance, uh, balance this idea of the space for conversation <coughs> Well, I think the way that you do that is in the framing of the conversation and you make it very clear to people that opinions are being expressed. And I think that oftentimes opinions are passed off as fact and we don't draw attention to them. So, so and, and, and actually, in hard news, you see that happening all the time. So people can say this is true, but they're manipulating the way that they put the information out there to form an impression. It's like when, you know, I, I, my dad's a lawyer, so I grew up around courtrooms. And it's like when people, you see this on television all the time, and they'll say, oh, so you mean you really did that because of blah, blah. And then, and then it's, oh, I object, sustained. We'll scratch that. Well, they just heard it. So it, it's, it's, you're, you're never free of that kind of thing. So it's really up to the interviewer, and this is another part of, of how journalists can make a huge difference, is to call that out and to be well prepared, first of all, and question that person. Did you say that was 70%? Because in this particular study, I read that it was 85%. Now you're telling people that might not be the case. But also, as you frame the conversation, you say that you're bringing people in and what their background is and that they're expressing their opinions and that those opinions are not necessarily the opinions of the station or of you, the interview, but this is an avenue for people to express them. And I think you have to make a very clear distinction about that.
Anything else? All right, time to have beers. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.